Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Dr Amy Grant, Senior Lecturer in Public Health here at Swansea. Amy's research focuses on improving healthcare for autistic people. Their current project, Autism from Menstruation to Menopause, uses participatory research with the autistic community to better understand reproductive health. Amy, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you for having me. To start us off, can you just give us an overview of your research, please? Yes, yeah, so um, I'm really fortunate to have a huge Welcome Trust uh, fellowship at the moment. Um, so they funded me for eight years with four staff uh, to really get into the detail of what everyday life is for autistic people with wombs. So that's women, trans men and some non-binary people. Great. And the the focus on autistic people uh, here in particular why is that so important and why is the whole reproductive health element of it so so interesting for you so I, I think it's really important for us to know more about the lives of autistic people because our health tends to be worse on almost every marker so autistic people die 16 years before their peers if they don't have a learning disability but autistic people with learning disabilities die 30 years earlier than, than the average um, and at the moment, most research on autism is focused on children who have autism, and it's really influenced by their parents and their parents' expectations. So we really don't know much at all about autistic adults' lives. And, and to get that early death rate down, we need to know what are the problems autistic people face and what are the potential solutions. So, I mean, th those, those figures really are genuinely shocking aren't they but have we got some idea of what lies behind them why, why why they are so awful so we know from existing research that health uh, care services tend to be quite inaccessible for autistic people so things like needing to make a phone call to book an appointment with your gp actually most autistic people struggle with phone calls so if they could ask by email or by text message they'd be more able to get there also autistic people communicate differently to your average non-autistic person so we tend to be more direct uh, we might have done some research so we've put our symptoms together and gone with these five symptoms we might have this particular condition but actually health professionals often don't like that. Um, it doesn't always go down very well. Last year, there was a review of evidence on health professionals' views of autistic adults. And we found that actually they had really quite negative views about autistic people and what they thought actually was kind of going on stereotyped views from 20 or 30 years ago, not up-to-date knowledge. And, and that really means that then if autistic people don't actively tell their health professional that they're autistic, they might not get any accommodations around that. Because, for example, I've had health professionals say to me, oh, no, you can't be autistic. But of course I can. I just know how I'm expected to behave in a health consultation. And I do what I can to try to get some treatment for the symptoms I'm going in with. And this thing you were mentioning about the 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 disparity, I suppose, between the diagnosis of young people, um, young autistic people and older people. I mean, what, what lies behind that? 
So I think as well, when it comes to uh, to women, historically, we've been really underdiagnosed. So thinking about uh, autism, typically you would see white men being diagnosed as autistic and people from other ethnicities uh, and women have just not been diagnosed historically, but that is now improving. Every year, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC in America, do a survey of eight-year-olds. And they found just recently that one in 36 eight-year-olds in America have been diagnosed as autistic. But we know the average age for diagnosis of girls is 12 to 13 years. So that one in 36, so, you know, 3%, just over 3% is an underestimate. Um, so, so we really do have an underdiagnosis issue, um, which is exacerbated in the UK by not having enough staff working in autism services. So it can take three or four years to get your diagnosis from the beginning of seeking it. Now, I think, as we might come on to talk about, a lot of people use terminology incorrectly when it comes to autism, but also they they think they understand things about it, but but perhaps they they don't. If you were to characterise what having autism involves, uh, just for people perhaps who who might misunderstand it, just to give a little bit of context to this discussion, what would you say? I mean, what 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 are some of the typical characteristics of someone uh, with with autism? So if we look at outdated uh, medical model language, they would say that we had deficits in uh, communication and in social relationships and in sensory processing. And I wouldn't disagree that there are differences with any of those three areas. But if we're looking at autism from a more neurodiversity affirming perspective, so that's saying that just because we have different brains, it doesn't mean they're worse, then we we tend to focus on two areas. So autistic communication tends to be different. So uh, we don't tend to do small talk. So, for example, if I'm meeting up with a close friend, we will just get straight into the meat of a discussion and there's no how's the weather and, you know, like, (laughs) how is your dog or whatever. It's straight into, oh, my God, did you see that thing? And it's, you know, about some really big social issue. So our communication is kind of quite direct. Um, we might not pick up on nuances. So something that does impact autistic people in healthcare is, uh, and particularly when they've just had a baby, you might be asked, how is everything? And you know that the standard response expected to that question is fine or okay. But actually at that point in that healthcare consultation, it means you know, are you bleeding too much? Are you being able to feed the baby okay? Are you in any significant pain? And and we can sometimes not pick up on those nuances um, that non-autistic people do. And the second really big difference is around sensory processing. So uh, I think in general, most autistic people will have different sensory processing to non-autistic people. And we can think about the kind of the standard five senses, the smell, the touch, the taste, uh, hearing. Um, And with those, autistic people often experience them either as too much or too little. And that can be really dysregulating. So for me personally, 
the world is nearly always too bright. There is nearly always too much stuff around me. Um, so I have some dark glasses. They have a pink t uh, tint to them, like Elton John, but they also have quite a grey, smoky uh, lens as well. So they're too dark for me to be able to drive in legally, but they make the world feel a lot better. And also it might be, for example, something quite common with uh, autistic children is labels in clothes can drive them to distraction or school uniform trousers can feel uncomfortably scratchy. So, you know, we're, we're thinking about we have these differences, but like with my glasses, the world is okay with taking labels out of clothes, that child will not be driven mental and be scratching a hole in their neck from trying to get the label to stop itching. So we have these differences and the Equality Act says that we need to have reasonable accommodations made. So for example, an autistic child might have an accommodation that they can wear tracksuit bottoms instead of school trousers. So they're softer on their skin and less dysregulating. So, yeah, so communication in the sensory world are really where we find differences. That's really helpful and and useful as well. And hopefully that will that will ground some of the discussion that, that, that we go on to have. Just in terms of terms and terminology as well, I, I know that you're very keen that when we discuss the subject, we use the right terms and, and the right sort of wording. Uh, and I, I've looked at some of the things that we should and, and, and shouldn't say, and, I, and I'll hold my hands up and say that I think I've in the past talked about, you know, the, the autism spectrum in the in an incorrect way, for, for example. But what else should we be avoiding or how should we be phrasing our language? So most of the autistic community prefer to be called an autistic person. So the reason that we put autism before person, which is known as identity first language, is that being autistic is an integral part of ourselves. So we, we can't ever change that. Something that uh, is sometimes incorrectly believed is that people become autistic. Um, and that's probably from all of the misinformation about the MMR vaccine, you know, back 20 years ago. But people still think that people become autistic age two and, and onwards. But actually, you're either born autistic or you're not. And the way that uh, autistic people's symptoms, as it may be uh, considered, come to light are because the environment around them doesn't meet their needs. So then their behaviour starts changing because they're dysregulated. So when we're talking about autism, I would always say that unless somebody tells you differently, you would refer to the person as being autistic or an autistic person. And um, and we have moved away from some older diagnostic categories. So uh, some people who were diagnosed perhaps 10 or more years ago may have a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. But we don't use that anymore uh, because Asperger was actually a, a Nazi working in Vienna during the Second World War and sending autistic people to the gas chambers if they weren't considered to be useful. The autistic people he considered to be useful for society, he gave his own name to. So they became Asperger's syndrome cases rather than autism cases. But these days, the autistic community, they want to come together and autistic people who have the 
the privilege and the power of speaking and having a platform do try to then raise the profile and the needs of autistic people that might not have that platform by by sharing this common label. Well, I'm a historian and I've learned something there about Asperger's, so that's, 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 that's fascinating. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your work on pregnancy and parenting? Yes. So uh, most of my postdoctoral work, so since about 2013, has focused on pregnancy and infant feeding. Um, and when I was diagnosed as autistic myself in 2019, it led me then to think, well, what do we know about autistic people's experiences and when I started to, to research in this area, we don't actually know very much at the moment. Um, so there was a paper published in 2019 uh, that reported that of all autism research funding in America, 98% was directed to research on children with only 2% on adults. So it, it's unsurprising that we don't know that much about maternity care because traditionally a lot of the research has focused on autistic men and boys. What we do know is that when it comes to pregnancy, um, autistic people can feel more dysregulated than they would usually. So when I talk about dysregulation, that comes from things like the sensory environment around us. So the world being too bright, the washing machine being too noisy, uh, a child being demanding for particular things. Um, they, you know, they can then uh, build up more during pregnancy than they would usually. Uh, when it comes to birth, we know that autistic people often don't have their their needs respected. Um, we so research that I've done has shown many people uh, that have found health professionals don't believe that they're in pain and don't believe that their labour is fully established because our our pain might not show on our face. We might hold that pain inside more than your average non-autistic person. Um, and I've had several people report that literally the baby was almost out of the birth canal and into this world and people still didn't believe that they could be in active labour or they could need pain relief. Autistic people also tend to struggle more with touch and can find that really quite unpleasant. So having uh, examinations during pregnancy and when giving birth could be really unpleasant. And actually, you know, sometimes health professionals will have their hand literally about to go into somebody's vagina before they say, we'll just do a quick examination now. So we had lots of reports of people not being given the opportunity to turn down examinations or to even just consent to them properly. So yeah, we have some some extra difficulties uh, compared to non-autistic people who are giving birth. Okay, thank you. Um, your research has involved starting Wales's first autistic research community council. Um, I read. What does this involve? So I'm I'm really excited about uh, my community council. So as part of my big Welcome Trust fellowship, the first year is. Uh, building a community council of autistic people to work with me and co-govern the study. So most research uh, on autism is done by non-autistic people who quite often sit within that medical model and have a deficit view of autism. 
And that fundamentally shifts the things that we know about autism because they're already starting from a, a wrong perspective. When I applied for this funding, I literally wrote my dream list of the project I would like to do. And year one of my project is, is just building this community council of people that will co-govern the study with me. So I, I have four uh, community leaders that I've called them who are part of the team. Um, and they are people who are directors of charities who are autistic. Um, and they're currently helping me with uh, recruiting for another eight lay members who are just your everyday, everyday autistic person uh, who has some interest in research and would like to come along and would like to shape how we're doing this. And it's really to make sure that we're doing things properly so that we're getting the voices of autistic people who are non-speaking, who have learning disabilities, who have lower educational qualifications. I mean, most people involved in autism research are very highly educated. So we're just trying to make sure we, we lay the groundwork so our research has validity. Amazing. Th these lay members, um, I mean, that sounds really interesting to me. Where, where are you going to find them, I suppose, or, or how are you going to try and bring them into the, in, into the projects and onto the community council? So we're currently advertising for them at the moment, and we have a list of about 10 organisations that have agreed to advertise for us. Um, so Autistic UK, the, the UK's main autism charity led by autistic people, uh, Fair Treatment for the Women of Wales, who are a reproductive health group, um, and also kind of more well-known organisations. So the the Wales National Autism Team, who develop all autism services for Wales, are involved as well as Health and Care Research Wales. So we're, we're putting our adverts out with them, lots of social media campaigning. At the moment, we, we haven't had as many applicants from people who are young. So one of our categories are 16 to 21 year olds. And another category we're particularly hoping to fill is those who have a minority ethnic background because you know so much autism research is really really white and and we want to to make sure we're including those people so we've proactively targeted organizations who who have membership that would meet those groups well i was going to ask about collaboration in general and the and the organizations and the groups who you work with as part of this broader research and you've mentioned quite a few there but you want to say a little bit more about the different not just the different groups but the different kinds of groups because i'm really struck that you've got quite a lot of ngo groups here haven't you so it's not just purely a, a an academic project yes absolutely um I think the way that I start any research project is I go, who are the people I'd really like around the table? And then I just send them kind of slightly groveling, begging letters, telling them how brilliant I think they are. Um, and it seems to work quite well, um, which, which is good. So um, Autistic UK are brilliant um, and should have far more government funding and everything uh, than some other autism charities that aren't led by autistic people and really don't represent us. Um, so I've worked with Autistic UK on a couple of projects before and you know, I, I'm delighted that they are one of my partners for this. And also Fair Treatment for the Women of Wales have just been so supportive, I think, um, 
in terms of my research background, it's all been concentrated in that maternity period to date. But actually, my uh, community consultation when I was designing this project, people said, well, what about contraception? What about the menopause? You know, what about when people start their periods? So I had to expand it out into areas that I really don't know much about at the moment. So Yes, it, it's absolutely brilliant to have them on board, to have their knowledge of, of these kind of reproductive issues. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I do have those, uh, more normal or more usual stakeholders around the table as well. So, you know, and I think they're really important because they carry weight and they have resources, even if they aren't necessarily the groups that are meeting the community's needs as their first point. So far, I haven't had everybody around the table. So once a year, I'll have all of these different stakeholder organisations coming to hear where we've got to with the project. Um, so I think it it will be interesting when we start getting people who have perhaps different pulls in terms of what their organization's priorities are um, coming in and seeing if we can, you know, help people meet their needs in all of these organizations will, will definitely be interesting. Um, so yes, watch this space for some more of that in the future. We'll be, we'll be watching. I mean, it, specifically in terms of this grant that you've won, I mean, even by academic standards, this is a huge amount of money, isn't it, from, um, from, uh, the, the, from the funding council. And I mean, it, it's, it's hard to get often very, very big sums like that. So was, do you want to tell us a little bit actually about the process of actually you know, bidding for it and, and successfully winning it? Yes. So, um, so I arrived at Swansea University in March 2021 and uh, I work for Professor Amy Brown. And the funding that Amy had at that point was to develop her infant feeding research centre, uh, which is known as LIFT, Lactation, Infant Feeding and Translation. And so I'd come in fresh from my own terrible experiences of uh, healthcare around maternity. And, you know, I thought this is the time where I can actually do some work on autism and infant feeding. So I had quite an open remit. I just needed to try and bring some funding in. So uh, initially, I applied for some smaller pots of money to start this program of research, whilst also applying for some more traditional pots of money for work that I was more well known for um, and being successful with a few UKRI grants. Um, and then I, I kind of thought, you know, if I'm applying for fellowships, it was the last year that I could apply for an early career fellowship. And I just thought, I've got to put in what I really want to do, you know. So I applied for the Early Career Fellowship from Health and Care Research Wales at the same time as the Welcome Mid-Career Fellowship. Um, and fortunately had interviews for both. Um, immediately after my Welcome Trust interview, I found out that I didn't get the Early Career Fellowship from Health and Care Research Wales. So it was really lucky I found that out afterwards so it didn't put me off in that interview. But I, I actually found the application process for the Wellcome Trust was less burdensome than the Early Career Health and Care Research Wales Fellowship. Um, so they just recently uh, completely redesigned their fellowship funding 
So they now only have three different fellowships they offer instead of around 10 before, and they streamlined their application form. So actually, it really wasn't too painful to complete and seemed to be asking the questions in a way that it was easy to show the strengths of the project. Um, so as well as the application form, uh, I had to uh, send in. So when I was invited for interview, I had to send in more detailed information on the costs that I'd asked for. Um, and that went backwards and forwards for a few weeks. And the interview uh, was, I think there was maybe a panel of about 10 or 12 people, but primarily two people asking the questions. And Actually, it was a really nice interview. It, it felt like none of the questions were too painful, um, apart from one where I thought, oh, my God, I haven't actually designed anything around theory in this project, and I absolutely must. Um, but apart from that, everything felt quite easy. And I think perhaps it goes to show that designing the project that really fit with me and my experience worked really well here. And I think that's something that you're told to do with fellowship applications. But sometimes there are other kind of competing priorities that mean that that you don't have the luxury of putting in what you'd really like to do. Um, so I think this just worked out well for me. It just happened to be at the right time, really. That's great, and it's good to good to hear about Amy as well, who we've we've had on here before. We've interviewed her. She's a she's a friend of the podcast, so um, it's it, it's good that you're working with her. It's obviously a it's obviously a strength, Swansea. This 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 area, which is obviously a very very important uh, research kind of field. Amy, a couple of times you've you've talked about quite quite frankly about your your personal circumstances and how they've shaped the, the focus of your research. But I wanted if you could tell us a bit more, and I'm really struck by the fact that you were obviously working in this area, uh, but you mentioned about being diagnosed only in 2019. So I wondered, I suppose, if having that diagnosis um, changed the way that you approach the topic or changed your perspective on the research? Yes. So um, I should probably say that before I did my undergraduate degree, which I, I did as a mature student, I worked as a care support worker for autistic people living in 24-hour residential care. And the training that I had to do that job, the, the way that autistic people were talked about meant that there was no way that I could understand that I was an autistic person because so much of it was framed as a deficit rather than a difference. And so I, I had that background already. Um, and then it was only, so I was diagnosed as dyslexic during my undergraduate degree. And the only reason I got diagnosed was because I was poor and I heard you got a free computer if you had your diagnosis. So um, when a colleague said to me, I'm sure you're dyslexic as well. She was uh, dyslexic. I, I went and had the assessment and the assessor said to me, we can say that you're dyslexic, but you don't have to have the label. You know, it, it will be with you for life if I give you this letter. And I was like, you know, yeah, that, that's fine. It, it doesn't bother me at all. And I'll get my free computer, um, <laughs> which is so terrible in hindsight. Uh, but yes, I, I feel like even just that experience came with the idea that having a label of dyslexia would be somehow more negative than being dyslexic and not having support for it. And that 
that was something that later in my career, actually, I've really needed support. I have software that dictates for me, that uh, that will read documents out loud for me. I have a brilliant support worker who basically keeps on top of my diary and makes sure I'm in the right place at the right time and, you know, deals with complex systems that I really struggle with. So, yeah, so getting a, a dyslexia diagnosis was really useful earlier in my career. But then I had a really difficult time at work uh, where my reasonable adjustment for dyslexia of having a single occupancy office was taken away. And that really started the whole process of my health completely tanking. So I've always been quite an allergic person, but my asthma and allergies went haywire um, I used to run long distance and now I use a wheelchair, still six years on from when this happened. Um, and so when it came to getting my own autism diagnosis, um, I, I'd met somebody lovely at a conference who had Facebook friended me and is autistic. Um, and she'd posted something like 10 signs, you're a woman and you're autistic. And I was like, tick, 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 tick for every one of them. And things were so difficult at work that I thought if I also had an autism diagnosis on top of dyslexia, they would understand that I really needed quiet to be able to do my job. Um, so, yeah, so I went and, and got diagnosed and got my, uh, my diagnosis and my formal piece of paper. Um, and I then had another really negative work experience where like accommodations that had been agreed to just weren't put into place um, and, and had to leave another job, which was, you know, really upsetting and was difficult when I moved to Swansea. Um, but yes, as, as you mentioned, uh, before I came to Swansea, I had an ectopic pregnancy and it was after I'd had my autism diagnosis. And because I'm quite medically complex, uh, my consultant had recommended a cheat sheet for if we had to go into hospital with COVID happening. And um, so, you know, they, they could know what things to watch out for if we had COVID and got very unwell. And um, yes, when I went into hospital, it, it was almost like there was no response to me saying, I'm autistic and I have a working memory impairment and these things are really difficult for me. It was during COVID, so my husband wasn't allowed to accompany me for any of the appointments. And it was all just really, really horrible. And previously, I've worked as a medical ethnographer. So that means that, I mean, it, it's my ideal job. You know, I'm, I'm so nosy that being an ethnographer is amazing. So I would then follow around a doctor or a nurse as they were working on a hospital ward treating patients. And I would write notes about what they were doing, <laughs> about how they made their decisions about particular things. And then you go and write them up and, and that's your whole job. And it's absolutely brilliant. I love doing it. So, you know, I, I already knew all of this stuff about being in hospital and, and things from, from having that uh, work experience. I'd also worked as a an auxiliary nurse on an NHS ward before coming to university. And so the way I coped with this experience of being in a, a 10 bedded ward, which was autistic sensory hell, was to pretend I was there for work and to take really detailed field notes. And I just had to kind of disassociate from the experience of being there. 
Um, and, and afterwards, that was when I really started thinking, I'm already doing work on maternity experiences of disabled people, so people with rheumatic conditions and people on low incomes, people living in stigmatized areas. What about autistic people? So that was when I kind of jumped into that. And I think before it had never occurred to me, probably because I'd never seen anybody write anything about it. And, you know, we we really don't have a lot of information there, which I think is why it's so great that I have all of this time to to get into the detail of it. That's quite an amazing story. Um, and and I can reassure you as well that being a historian also requires being nosy as well. So I know I, I very much know how you feel. Um, in terms of the the out the outcomes of your your research, what are you hoping some of the major outputs will be? Because I know you've got quite ambitious ideas for it, don't you? Yes. So um so the first six years of the study, so it's an eight-year project, uh, will involve setting up the community council to, to run it with me. And then we'll have a period of five years where we have a group of 100 autistic people with wombs, so women, trans men and non-binary people. And we will interview them about every six months just to find out a bit about their background of their reproductive health experiences and then we'll get kind of real time updates of what's happening in their lives um, and any differences that their experiences uh, have any new healthcare appointments. And by the end of that, I think we'll know so much more about barriers and facilitators to good reproductive healthcare for autistic people that the last two years will be spent putting that into practice. So we'll be working with groups like Autistic Doctors International, uh, the Autistic Health Research Network, Maternity and Autism Research Group, and seeing, you know, once we've got clinicians around the table who are also autistic uh, and we've got that patient experience, what we can do to bring it together but also something that's easy for healthcare professionals to use that doesn't cost too much money because we know the NHS doesn't have too much money and that doesn't take too much time. So, you know, we're, we're really looking for the moon on a stick, but we've got a lot of time. So I think we should be able to get something, you know, that, that's useful on both sides. So it supports the clinician as well as the patient. The, the phrase that jumped out at me when I was reading about your work was autism friendly resources as well in terms of the, the, these long term these long term aims. So are you thinking about anything very specifically at this stage or is it or is it still quite open ended? So following on from some research that I did last year, um, I have a pot of money uh, to work with some charities. So with Autistic Parents UK, again, who are a lovely charity, entirely volunteer led uh, and Autistic UK to develop some resources around kind of what pregnancy is like, what birth is like, and then that early postnatal time. So I'm currently working with those groups who are developing short videos for me on particular topics that, you know, would usually be covered in antenatal classes, but antenatal classes aren't always very accessible for autistic people. So we'll be having a, a suite of videos, probably around 100 videos that will go up on the Swansea University website late this summer or perhaps into the autumn. So we'll have some there that that should be really helpful for autistic people who are going through that 
kind of maternity journey, uh, but also their partners, family and friends and the health professionals, I think, could probably, you know, learn more about autistic experiences from them as well. So, you know, I think as we go along, I'll be trying to do what I can to develop more of these things just to make life that little bit easier for autistic people as we go through the project. You've got a Facebook group as well, haven't you, where you discuss some of these issues? Yes. So um, I decided that I really needed to start sharing some of this uh, this research wider than my own like Facebook profile. So I set up a group called Dr. Amy Grant Autism from Menstruation to Menopause. And you know, it's only been a few months and we already have over 100 people in the group. And as well as posting my own research, I share things from other autistic self-advocates. Um, so particularly trying to think about people that are in marginalised groups that might not otherwise get an audience. So, for example, people who are non-speaking and autistic often get dismissed as though they have no intelligence because they can't verbally express their thoughts when Actually, they can say plenty if you give them an accessible communication style. So, yes, yeah, so we have that group at the moment, which is open to anybody. And I'm also developing a private group uh, that's open to autistic people with wombs. So most women, trans men, some non-binary people. And there we'll be kind of thinking about the research project's findings, but also doing some education around you know, how to critically review a, a research paper, because so much research about autistic people has quite significant flaws. But actually, when you read that newspaper headline, it could make you feel really bad about yourself without knowing that that, that research was asking the wrong questions to start with. So, you know, we'll be doing that community education as well as kind of trying to raise the profile of the issue more broadly. Great. Now, if People are listening to this and thinking, this is great stuff. This is important work. And actually, they, they, they might be autistic people who are, who are listening to this. And they want to actually get into this line of work and, and do this kind of research. What advice would you give them? So I've written a blog for uh, the Employment Autism website, which talks about how autistic people can excel at being researchers and the steps that you might take to become a researcher yourself. So, you know, the, the general path in is that you may have a, an undergraduate degree, but you don't have to. A lot of autistic people will do a master's degree, uh, skipping their undergraduate entirely, and then go on to either become a research assistant or to do a, a PhD. So that's a, a three-year program, usually, of doing a big piece of research by yourself. For people who think that feels like it's too much, I'd encourage you to join my Facebook group and we'll be advertising that private Facebook group soon. And, and we'll be doing, you know, we'll be taking requests from people. So if people want to, for example, know a bit more about the ethics process, so how it's decided that research is allowed to go ahead, then, you know, we can do some things on that. So, you know, we'll have webinars and we'll be taking requests for topics Great. Well, Amy, it's been a really fascinating conversation. I've learnt loads. So thank you very much for, for sharing all the information, including all the personal stuff as well, which which, which I think has really shone a, a, a unique light onto everything. So thanks. Thank you for having me. 
If you want to find out more about Amy's research, you can visit their staff for a cloth page on Swansea University's website or their Facebook page, which we were just talking about, which is Dr. Amy Grant, Autism from Menstruation to Menopause. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to my guest, Dr. Amy Grant. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.